pastors here. Um, I feel like I'm in a cave. <laughs> I feel like I'm in a cave with like two people, but obviously I'm not. Um, shall I just carry on? Just ca- I was just going to carry on. I was going to sold- soldier on. Um, we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Many of you are aware of that. We've been in with the Sermon on the Mount since the first Sunday in May. And after this one, we've got two left. Then we are done on the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. And um, trust that God has used it to um, speak into your hearts. Trust that God has used it to um, arrest you, encourage you, provoke you, challenge you. And all those things that definitely has happened in my own heart as I've been preparing the messages and, and preaching. We're really at the climax of the message this week. Um, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 7, verses 12 to 14. Verse 12 is really the climax of the message. Okay, That's really the climax of the whole sermon. So verse 12 says this, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Then Jesus goes on to say, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So we're going to look at both those elements today. Chapter, uh, verse 12, the climax of the message. And then we're going to look at verses 13 and 14 about the wide and the narrow gate. And just look at Jesus' words and really just unpack them and let them stand for what they are. They don't need many things to be said about them. They're pretty straightforward, but maybe to just highlight a few things would help. So, verse 12. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Father, please help us with this passage. We need help in so many ways. We need help in our minds to grasp spiritual truth, in our hearts to be soft and not resistant to you in our imagination to really see the full colour of what you're saying and not to reduce it to something drab and really quite meaningless. Lord, we need help, even physically, Lord, if some of us are still digesting meals and all the rest of it. Help us to get all we can out of this, Lord, so that we can be uh, increasingly changed for your glory, increasingly matured. And for those here, Lord, that maybe don't even know you, I pray that through this message that new life would come. Pray these things, Lord, because we know that you love to do them. We put ourselves in your hands. I put myself in your hands. Holy Spirit, please use me in this message. Amen. So it's the climax of the message. And Jesus, interestingly, says also that it's the sum of the Old Testament. When Jesus says this is the law and the prophets, verse 12, that was a term they used to describe the Old Testament. They would use the... um, the phrase the law and the prophets to really describe the whole of the Bible from Genesis through to Malachi. So Jesus is saying, you know what, really this is what the whole of the Old Testament's about as well. It's about whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Now it makes perfect sense. No one in their right mind would challenge it. No one in their right mind would disagree with it. Many other religions would teach this, but just Jesus coined the phrase, but many other religions before Jesus and after Jesus have really said very similar things. And so in a sense, the statement isn't controversial. You can't really find anything wrong with it. I mean, you look at the London riots. This statement is the solution to the London riots. You, you, You hear that there's a gathering outside Dixon's and we're about to smash the place down and get ourselves a 40 inch TV, you, you get your hoodie on and your baton in your hand and you're about to leave your home and suddenly 
you remember this phrase, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Hmm. If I owned Dixon's, would I want this to happen? No. Therefore, I won't do it. It works for the London riots. It works for the politicians and the expenses scandal. While you're there putting your receipt in for your trip to Barbados, which was really necessary for work, um, at that point you pause and you ask yourself, if I was an average Joe taxpayer, would I like my MP to be putting in uh, hoax receipts for holidays and things and claiming it was for work? No. Okay, therefore I won't do it. It works. It works on every level. It works, it works for rich nations that um, put poor nations... Uh, under crippling debt and then, and then really create systems that make it impossible for those nations to get out of debt. If those rich nations for a minute stopped and thought, oh, if I was a poor nation or the leader of a poor nation, would I want the leaders of the rich nations to do this to me? No. Okay, therefore we'll stop it. And it even works on the very personal level, the things we've looked at throughout the Sermon on the Mount. I, you know, I don't want people to take revenge on me when I do something stupid. I don't want that to happen. I don't want them to. I want people to give me space and room and a bit of grace. And so I shouldn't take revenge on those who do stupid things and things that affect me. I don't want people looking lustfully at my wife. I don't want them. I don't want them doing that. I don't want people making eyes at my wife. Who in the world would? I don't want people judging me. I don't want people speaking harshly of me. I don't want Davina to tire of me and divorce me. I don't, want to, I don't want people to lose their rag with me. But here's the question. Why do I lose my rag then? Why do I speak harshly of others? Why do I judge? Why do I allow my eyes to wander? Why do I seek revenge? Why in one breath do I affirm that this is the way and if everyone did this, wouldn't the world be a much better place and complain at those who don't do it and with the next breath, myself, find myself breaking this very principle and not doing it. What's wrong with me? What, what, is, what is the explanation of this? In the early 20th century, the Times um, wrote an article on what's wrong with the world and they, 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 they said we'd love people to write in with their opinions of what is wrong with the world and a very famous Christian apologist called G.K. Chesterton wrote in and said dear sirs, dear sirs, I am yours G.K. Chesterton. Now here's the thing, even though many many other religions espouse this teaching in different words, but the same thing, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. I want to suggest that only Christianity understands this phrase and knows how to apply it, because only Christianity understands sin. Because sin is what is wrong with me. And sin is what is wrong with you. And here's how it works. It's a very nuanced thing, although very powerful Here's what I mean. On the one hand, sin is like a power in and of itself that has me in its grip. The Bible teaches that sin, it, sin has all people in its grip, naturally speaking. That in a sense we are victims of sin. There are, there, we find ourselves enslaved to sinful desires. And it could be anything from sexual perversion to greed to self-righteousness. Um, and, and everything in between, the stuff we would say was clearly wrong and other stuff that's much more subtle, whether it's that or whether it's that, whether you're the reckless, obvious sinner or the much more subtle, respectable type, we find ourselves in the grip of sin and so in a sense we're all victims of sin. 
But it's two-way traffic, and here's what I mean. Sin is also a willful rebellion on my part. It's not poor old me, I'm under the grip of sin. It's also, actually, I love sin. I want to do my own thing, which is the, the heart of sin. Is I don't want to be under God's rule, I want to be autonomous. And so inside me I find this strange thing. I'm a, I'm a victim of sin, I'm enslaved to it. I find there are certain things I don't want to do, but I can't stop doing them. By the same token, there is within me this rebellious desire to be my own boss and do my own thing, which always ends in slavery to sin. That's the mechanics of how it works. And it means that you will not do, verse 12. Naturally, you will not do to others what you want them to do to you. Sin has so warped our perspective and understanding, so corrupted the way we see things, so twisted our observation of things, that we find ourselves, um, whether blatantly or subtly, hypocrites. Those who say, why can't they do that? And then suddenly someone shines a light on us and we go, oh man, I've done the same. Which is why the Bible says every mouth is stopped before God. Because you suddenly realise. Sometimes it's really obvious. In the heat of the moment, you say to someone, you did this, I can't, how could anyone in their right mind ever do that? And then they turn to you and said, well, you did it two weeks ago. And every mouth is stopped. And you can't believe it, because even when you screamed at them, you'd totally forgotten. It seemed like the most outrageous thing that someone could do. And then as soon as they say it, you realise, you're exactly right, I absolutely did. Sometimes it's not quite like that, you know, someone does something, you think, I never did that, I never would do that kind of thing. And we kind of distance ourselves as if we're not like that. But there are other things. And when faced before a holy God who hates sin full stop, we find all of us, that all of our mouths are stopped. So we we are stuck by this. This is not Jesus just saying generically, why don't you guys do this, this would be a great idea. He knows us, he understands us. You have to understand the Sermon on the Mount. You have to go back to the start. The first thing he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who realise, oh, I really am a sinner. I really have got nothing to commend me to God. And even though I may have been hurt and wronged by these people and that people, and I may feel like I've been the injured party in life, I may feel like, if you look at my life, I I appear that I am the victim and in many ways am. I still know actually when I come before God that I'm the perpetrator also. I've done many things, said many things, thought many things that the searcher of hearts has seen. And we find ourselves undone. And then blessed are those who mourn. We mourn our sin. We realise before God, I'm no better than anyone else. Have mercy on me. And then blessed are the meek. As you see yourself as you are, you realise, oh gosh, my worst sin is that I put myself at the centre of the universe. And you let God in his mercy remove you from that place so that he might take that place. It's conversion. Becoming a Christian. It's being born again where you are no longer what you were. You've been transformed by the gospel. Praise God. <laughs> Praise God. You see, this is the message. This is what you've got to hear. This is what you've got to understand. Whether you're here as a fully-fledged card-carrying Christian, and you get it, or whether here and you're like, what what is this? What is this about? Why are you singing? How does this thing work? Here's how it works. It works that God, who is perfectly holy and refuses to compromise that, has incredibly sought us out by sending his one and only son to live an incredible life on our behalf, to die a terrible death on our behalf, and to be raised in an amazing resurrection on our behalf. 
and as we entrust ourselves entirely to Jesus, all that we are, and cling to him, God in his mercy removes that heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh and makes us brand new in Christ. And we find ourselves washed by the blood of Jesus, which means this, it means that his life poured out on the cross has washed me of all those things that deserve death. So now I can stand before God, cleansed by Jesus. It's the message. That's what it is. And in that moment of coming to Christ, the deal is closed. You become brand new, justified. He declares you righteous. And then he says, now we are going to go to work. I'm going to restore my image in you right through to eternity. That's how it works. That's the deal. You want to you know this Jesus today? You can know this Jesus today. But... What does it look like? Well, praise God for verses 13 and 14. We're going to look at those because this is an amazing, helpful description of the Christian life. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are, those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. There are three contrasts here Jesus holds up. The first is wide or narrow gate, the second is hard or easy way, and the third is many or few people. We're going to just unpack those, then we're done. So number one, wide or narrow gate? Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way easy. That leads to destruction. The gate is narrow, that leads to life. It's a narrow gate. What does that mean? Well, it means a few things, but one of them is this. If you want to come to know God through Christ, there's something very specific that has to happen. If if you've ever read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, the role of the evangelist is to point the man, um, Christian, who's under under conviction of sin, he's become aware, man, I've sinned, I'm not right with God, I want to get right with God. What does the evangelist do? He says to him, see that little wicked gate over there, that thin gate over there, you've got to get to that gate. There's a, very, there's, a, there's a specific place he's got to get to in order to go through it to come to know Christ. Now, it's really important you understand this because I, I think that maybe this is something that's been slightly lost, um, maybe of late. So, here's here, some living illustrations to show you what I mean. For Nicodemus in John 3, who was a religious man, Jesus said, you must be born again. Here's someone who had all the knowledge, he had all the spiritual knowledge, was a a teacher of the people, but Jesus said to him, you must be born again. There's the gate, Nicodemus. You know all this stuff, but you also know something's not right. There's the gate. You need regeneration. You need to be born again. There was a rich young ruler who ran up to Jesus and fell on his knees and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you know the commands? And the man said, I followed them all. So he'd followed them all, he was a moral man, a good man, but he ran to Jesus. Why? Because he knew something still wasn't right. Jesus says, for you, you need to give away all of your possessions to the poor, then come and follow me. For him, that was an arrow gate. There's something you must do. There's, some, there's a specific thing. Repentance means something specific for everyone. It's not just that you pray a prayer. Okay? No, that is insufficient. Very often, by coming to Christ, we articulate that in a prayer. I want to follow you, Lord. That's great. But coming to the narrow gate, there's something specific that has to happen. For some, it is. Your heart is gripped by money and riches. You need to turn away from that if you're going to follow Christ. What is it for you? Well, only God knows, but hopefully the Holy Spirit will show you as I preach. But the point is this. It's not a vague thing. Perhaps the most helpful scripture is John 10, 7, where Jesus says, I'm the gate. I'm the gate for the sheep. 
So it's, it's Jesus. Now we've got to look at this because uh, that can also be easily twisted. It's, it's Jesus. So I need to say this and I, and I say it with respect and I say it graciously. It's not Muhammad. It's Jesus. It's not Buddha. It's Jesus. See, Jesus says, I am the gate. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now you might say this problem, well, isn't that a bit narrow? Yeah, you got it. That's exactly what he's saying. It's a narrow gate. That's the point. Now I want to say this, it's not a meal deal, Jesus. Now let me just talk you through this. You know about the meal deals, yeah? Boots, Tesco's, Marks and Spencer's, you go, okay, I can get three items for $3.98 or whatever, right? So it's like, okay, first thing, sandwich. Okay, um, cheese and tomato, or I'll go for the cheese and tomato. Right, you've done that. Crisps, okay, cheese and onion, or bacon. Uh, uh, bacon, I like bacon. Bacon, you know, uh, drinks, okay, Coke or water. Coke, okay. <laughs> right, so there's your choice. Okay, that's what you do. People get a meal deal Jesus where they go, wow, yes, yeah. Heels are sick, yes, I love that. Cast out demons. Oh, that's a bit weird. No. Um, you know, I'll have that bit of Jesus. I like that bit of Jesus. And then move on to the, ne- the next stage of choosing, choosing your Jesus. Yeah? £3.98. Okay? <laughs> Choose your Jesus. So the, so the next stage, you're like, okay, well, what, what have we got here? Oh, well, um, lived an amazing life. What an example. Yes, I'll have that. Died, died for me. Oh, I don't need anyone to die for me. Thank you. I don't need, I don't need that. I'm sure. Sure, it's nice of him, but I don't need that. I won't have that. Okay, so I won't have that. You go on to the next stage. And that's not Jesus. You're creating the bits you want and you're leaving the bits you don't want, and you're creating something and you're calling it Jesus. It's not Jesus. Okay? Jesus is the gate. Um, it's not the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses. It's different Jesus. It's not Jesus. Their Jesus is created, not eternal. He's not fully God, fully man. Their Jesus isn't the Lord Jesus Christ. They believe in a man called Jesus, who at his baptism, the spirit of the Christ, whatever that is, came upon him. They don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as a person. It's not the Jesus of the Mormons. It's not. Jesus of the Mormons is Satan's brother. That's what they teach. That's the deep teaching of Mormonism. It's not the Jesus of the Mormons. It's not the Jesus of the Muslims. It's not. It is not the Jesus of the Muslims. They believe in a different Jesus. They believe in a Jesus who is not the Son of God. They believe in a Jesus who is um, not, the, not, the high, not the greatest prophet. It's a different person. Jesus is Jesus, as recorded historically by Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. This is the historical source of Jesus. Without this, you haven't got a historical source. You've got Josephus wrote a few things. A few other people wrote a couple of sentences. But the historical source is written by these four men. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And these four men have recorded that Jesus said, I am the gate. And it's the Jesus of the Bibles that's, that is the gate. So it's narrow. It's really narrow. And that's quite countercultural because, you know, we, we don't live in an age where people are really willing to fight over doctrine and beliefs. We don't do that anymore. We tend to just say, you know what, let's not fall out over beliefs. Let's just kind of, you know, let's just kind of take the whole thing and bring it together. And I'm sure we can figure it out. Make sure we just get on on the way. And I believe in respectful dialogue. I absolutely do. I believe in um, graciousness, gentleness, treating one another from whatever faith with absolute respect, hearing one another out, speaking well. I believe in treating one another brilliantly. I believe in loving your neighbour regardless of belief. But I absolutely also believe in the vital importance of knowing what do we believe. Because the Bible suggests that what we believe, our, our eternal destiny hangs on what we put our trust in and what we believe. 
You see, there's a, there's a whole approach. The wide, the wide gate it goes a little bit like this. The wide gate is a very uh, common mentality that we have in the UK now, and it goes like this. It's, um, it's really an assumption that whatever route I choose to find enlightenment or to find revelation or to find salvation, you know, that really ought to work, and God should not be so particular about it. Instead, rather, he should be grateful that I'm getting spiritual, Okay. So God should be grateful that I'm getting spiritual. And so really, whatever avenue I go for, um, you know, it's really uh, that, that ought to work. And no one should be able to legislate whether that's right or whether that is wrong. And really what's going on, there is a sense of entitlement that actually if I want salvation, then I jolly well will get it, you know. And uh, entitlement is a long word for pride, which is a short word, um, which is one of the chief sins. And really it's where we value our autonomy over him and it's like well if I want to get enlightenment I'll get it who cares what he says kind of thing or I'll do it my way I'll find salvation my way self-salvation is not salvation it's it's the very pride that Jesus died to save us from it's the wide gate second thing is hard or easy Um, you see Jesus promises life to the full hallelujah but not an easy life oh (laughs) So we've got to look at that. Well, what does that look like? How do, how do we work out? Well, the word there, it means, it means it, when it narrow, it means to crowd. It means like to be squeezed. There's something of a squeeze about the Christian life. It squeezes you. Anyone experience that? And basically how it works is this. Anything about you that is, isn't really fitted out for life in the new heavens and the new earth, one way or the other will be, will be squeezed off of you. <laughs> one way or another will be burnt off of you and will be stripped away by God's merciful Fatherly grace, okay? It's never for harm. Sometimes hurts a bit, but it's never for harm. It's always for good. And you always come out saying, Lord, that is amazing. Do it again. Because it's just like, man, I'm being changed by the power of the Spirit. This is incredible. But it has that squeezing element to it. You see, we are sons. By God's grace, when we become Christians, we become adopted as sons. Hallelujah. And we are, we're in his household forever. But we're also soldiers. And the Bible says, you know, look, someone who's a soldier doesn't get entangled in civilian affairs because he's focused on pleasing the one who enlisted him. And Paul says to Timothy, endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And I tell you, the battle is on as a Christian. I want to say this to you. If you're thinking about becoming a Christian, if you're after an easy life, don't do it. Don't do it. You will be sorely disappointed. You really will. Uh, you'll be like, ah, what have I done? And it happens sometimes. You see people make a prayer of commitment and stuff, but no one's talked to them. No one said, you know what, this is lifelong. This is full on. This is revolution. This is hardcore. This is what it is. And then they freak out when God, you know, God starts changing them on stuff. They're like, what's, go- what's going on here? It's not, it's not an easy ride. It's It's great. I really believe that, you know, after that you sort of try and convince people that you actually believe it. It is great, you know. I chose to follow Jesus the best thing I did 20 years ago. But it's not an easy life. It's a battle. We've got the world, the flesh and the devil, three formidable foes looking to take us out, trip us up, keep us from bearing fruit. It's real. Not only that, we're athletes. We're running a race. The Bible says we're running a race. And um, the last time I looked at the athletes, man, they lived. They live with focus. They know where they're going. They're throwing stuff off that's going to get in the way. That is the biblical picture of the Christian life. Throw off everything that hinders. The sin that so easily entangles. Why? Because I'm going for I'm going for something. I'm running and I'm looking to win. That's the Christian life. 
But I'm coast over the finishing line. We strain with every fibre that we have. That's not legalism. It's God's grace that empowers us for that. God, God gives us a, the powerful working of his spirit so we can blast through to the finishing line and win that prize. It's a race. Also, it's work. And the Bible talks about co-labouring with God. And really going for it, Jesus said, whoever puts their hand to the plough and then looks back, they're not fit for service in the kingdom of God. If your life is lived like that, Jesus is saying, do you know what? I actually call you to serve me with your whole heart, mind, soul and strength. I actually call you to give yourself to my purposes. That's what he says. That's what he says. It's very exciting. It's just totally countercultural where we live in a culture where people are constantly hedging their bets. I'll do a bit of this and a bit of that just in case, you know, and you've invited me there and I might come, but something better might come up, so I won't totally commit and I'll just kind of surf in between that and that just in case. And Jesus says, give me your all. Give me everything. I want your heart, your mind, your body. I want your body offered as a living sacrifice in worship to me. Give me your attitudes. Give me your values. Give me your past. I want your present and your future, no matter how messy any of it is. This is what I'm after. Only the Lord of Lords can ask for that. (laughs) Only the King of all kings can ask you for that. Um, And he's tender and he's gracious and he doesn't call you to just kind of I don't know, get into this introspective thing where you're constantly just, I don't know, like trying to dig up any problem. He's like, no, let me just shepherd you. I will bring up those things that need dealing with at the right time and tenderly walk you through that because I love you dearly. It's not just about trying to sort things out all the time. It's about following him, but it's about running hard after him by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the life. That's what it is. Um, It's a pilgrimage. It's a journey. And I think because we tend to focus on that moment of being born again, we can forget it's a journey, it's a, it's a lifelong journey. I mean, I would say to you, if you've never read The Pilgrim's Progress, read it. It's such a helpful change of emphasis in terms of the whole thing is studied as, a, as, a, as an, ongoing, an ongoing journey. And Jesus said, those who endure to the end will be saved. He said that. Those who endure to the end will be saved. This thing is long term, this thing is going to the day... Uh, the day when we all go to glory. That's how this thing works. The easy, easy route that Jesus talks about, the easy way, that's where the, all the challenges are just reduced, where your sin is allowed to remain unchecked, um, where maturity is an optional extra. I want to just say to you, it's not Christianity. It isn't. And uh, God calls you to much greater things than that. He really does. He's got such a... It's got so much more for you than just kind of, how can I describe it? Just drifting through. Just drifting through and kind of, oh, giving some attention to that because it's really, people are starting to notice now that, you know, I'll give some attention to that. But really, you know, in the, in the, in the place of the heart and the inner place, there's no real get up and go. The Spirit of God comes to dwell in you to set you on fire for Jesus. He does. And sometimes you feel really on fire. And other times, because you've just, you know, because God's been working on you, you feel like, you know, wow, I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit of a, just like a smouldering wick, Lord. It's just been a tough season. And at, at that point, he promises, I will not blow you out. I will put my hands around you and protect you. And we'll get you back into a really good place. So it's tender. It's patient. It's beautiful. But the plan always is, let's get you on fire. Why? Because he wants to make you in his image and he is a consuming fire. Which means... In the actual words, the original words, it means he's an eating lightning. That is your God. An eating lightning. Cool, eh? 
is the way. You want to become a Christian? It's what you're signing up for. You should get the hint by the cross that it's kind of hardcore. You should get the hint, yeah, that he's gone to some serious lengths to have you and he really wants you. He really, really wants you. He's very, very zealous about you. In fact, the Bible says the spirit is called to live inside of you, jealously desires you. It's a jealous love. It's a burning love. It's a love that's stronger than the power of death. Wow, come on. And then this final thing, which is perhaps somewhat confusing, Jesus says that many people find the wide way, and he says the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. It's kind of strange and perplexing in some ways, because the Bible says that it's God's will that none should perish and all should be saved. And so it's obviously, in one sense, God's will that many, if not all, are saved. In Revelation chapter 7, we read of a, a number that no one can count from every tribe and tongue that's been saved. So you think, okay, it seems like there's a lot there. Um, Pentecost, we see 3,000 repenting and being baptized and being added to the church. You think, but Jesus, you're saying only a few find it. And then it seems like loads are going to find it. What do we make of this? I don't really know. I asked the guys in the office for it. I said, guys, what do you make of this? None of them knew either, thankfully. You know, it's, kind of, it's not just me. not just like I was a donut and it's really obvious. They were like, I don't know. What does it mean? I think there's three options. Take your pick. I think the first option is this. That in mass revivals where many, many people seem to get saved, actually not many are getting saved. There's just a big moment going on. A big, lots of people, it becomes the fashionable thing. You know how it is. People are sheep. Oh, great. That's the thing to do now. And, it gets put down that 1,000 people became Christians, but before God, it turns out it was 35. I don't know. That could, be one, that could be one option. The second option is actually that Jesus knows many are going to be saved, but he's saying, don't approach this thing like some sort of mass event. Don't look for safety in numbers. Don't have that, uh, that sense of well, what the crowd doing, because that must be the right thing. He's trying to kill that and say, no, 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 look to the narrow gate. Don't worry if there's not many people around it. That's the way that leads to life. So he's kind of trying to draw that idea out there. That's one way, possibly. The final thing, the final option might be that he's saying comparatively few will be saved. Yes, a number you can't count will be saved, but more won't be. I don't know, so I'm not pretending I do. But those are the options as far as I can see them, and do with them what you will. (laughs) Okay, I think it could mean any one of those things. But there's something going on there which I think is definitely very important and sobering for us that whatever we don't do, is try to find our safety in numbers. Yeah? I think, well, all those guys are doing it, so it must be, hold on. That's probably an unwise principle to live, live by as a believer. Because it's a false comfort. It's a false security. When you're standing before the white throne, I don't know how it's going to work, but, you know, it's going to be you and him. <laughs> and at that point, you need to be able to say, Lord, I did what I did out of conviction. And I probably might have got some things wrong and had some blind spots, but I did it out of conviction. I did it as if I was living before the throne, not just because they were all doing it. It's really important. Really, uh, really very important, that one. Because we've all got to take our stand there, all of us, and see his eyes burning with fire. And I think all he really is after is we did live out of conviction, live by faith, and he, under- he knows our form, he knows we're dust. He knows we're going to blow it. He knows we're going to stumble in many ways. But if we can stand before him and say, Lord, you know what? I know, number one, I'm only, I can only stand before you because of your blood covering me. That's the only reason I can even stand before you and be allowed in. But the second thing to say is this, Lord, that, you know, I thank you for the grace you gave me and I, I, looked to, I looked to live by genuine conviction and not just follow the every trend and fad that came along. I think he'll honour that. I, th- I know he'll honour that. Because he says it in the Bible that he's looking for us to live out of faith, which means genuine <coughs> conviction.
You see, because I think Jesus said many, many, many are on their way to destruction. Um, this sense of, oh, come one, come all, regardless of what you believe, you know, uh, don't worry about that. It's a false comfort. That sense of, well, we'll all wander together along and it all, you know, we'll all be together, we'll keep each other kind of safe and, you know, well, let's all just find people who agree with us and make us feel safe because we found people who agree with us. And if we get concerned or anxious on the way, just drown it with music, you know, or alcohol or something like that. And, uh, or maybe the opinion of a confident friend who sounds really confident. And Jesus says, you're heading to ruin. You are, the whole time you're doing that, you're heading to ruin. Follow me. Not me. <laughs> Him. Yeah, that's what he's saying. Follow me. It's so easy to get distracted. Remember, Peter got distracted about John. Jesus is telling Peter that, you know, you're going to die a martyr's death. And he says, what about him? John, as you would. Jesus says, what's, what's that to you? You follow me. He's always saying that. And we get so distracted about this one and that one. You follow me. That's what he's saying. The conclusion is this, is that it's between destruction or life. And the life starts now, but it's also a life that we come into when we get our new body, fit for the new heavens and the new earth. And by God's grace, it would be a glorious thing if... Well, I guess it's going to sound... Maybe it sounds a bit tough, but I think it's probably about right. By God's grace, if as many as possible of us find ourselves there and go, yes, we made it. We made it. We're here. And we'll go, isn't it amazing? Wasn't it worth it? And so really, to, just to end, how, how can Jesus require so much of us? I think it's about, it's about anything in life that is kind of... Well, in life, rarity and value, are, they're joined, don't they? Why is gold so valuable? Why? Because it's so rare. That's how it works. You, you, you value things by their rarity. And so... In the sense of Jesus saying, do you know what, this is such a precious thing I'm giving you, this eternal life. This knowing me. This having a relationship with God. Following the King. Such a precious thing. That, such a, in, in a sense, such a rare thing in, in terms of thinking of it as only few find it. That actually it's totally appropriate for Jesus to say, it's going to be hard. It's narrow. Sometimes you might feel a bit lonely because you'll say no to certain things because you think that's just a compromise. I'm not going to do it. You've got to make a stand. And you think, well, how can he ask these things of us? Well, it's because of who he is. He is so precious. He's the pearl of great price. In that parable, we read of that man who found the pearl of great price and we're told that he sold everything to get it. But what's the motivation? Out of joy. There it is. That's what we end with today. He found the pearl of great price and then out of joy over it, he sold everything he had so he could buy the field where it was. There is joy in Jesus that is incomparable with any other joy that can be offered by this world. I mean, it's a totally different class of joy. If you've known the joy of the Lord, you know what I'm talking about. It's internal it's it, instead of just an external thing. Oh, let's, that, happened, that, made, that happened, that made me happy. No, it's internal. It's outside of circumstances. You don't need to uh, have substances to get yourself to that place. The Holy Spirit fills you and you just know, I am right with God. I know I am a child of the King. He loves me. 
He's promised that he'll never leave me or forsake me. He's preparing a place for me. He'll never reject me. He'll never forsake me. I'm becoming a friend of God. I'm bearing fruit and fruit that will last. God has used me for his purposes. He's graced me and gifted me in ways that I just know it's like hand in glove. I mean, it's glorious. It's just glorious. On top of all of that, my past, my sins have been washed away. And I will never be judged for them. They are under the blood of Jesus. I have been cleansed. I can stand before God. How good is God? How good is Jesus? We want to get to the place where we're saying like Paul, I consider everything lost compared to knowing him. And Paul said, and also I lost, I have lost everything in order to know him. People say that he was probably married because most, I think it was a rule for Pharisees to be married. But we know that he was a single man. So many people teach that his wife left him because he got saved. We know that even towards the end of his life, many of his companions who seemed to be with him in Christian ministry left him because they were in love with the present world. In fact, he cuts a lonely figure in 2 Timothy where he's really waiting on death row, it seems, and he says, you know, please send me my, don't forget my cloak and the parchments because he's obviously cold, shivering in a cell. You think, man, it's not that amazing or impressive. But he also says this, I've run my race and I've finished my course. Wow. To be able to say that, to be able to know that, to be able to get to that place where you know you've done it and what awaits you is that crown that crown of glory that he's stored up for you. Praise God. So that's how this salvation works. And the right way, I think, probably to respond is for us to just get before God again. For some of us, it's probably a time to just have a bit of one-on-one and say, Lord, I just want you to know I'm game. (laughs) You know? Even for those of you that have been hurt on the way. And I'm sure in this room there'll be people sitting here facing stuff I couldn't imagine. But to be able to come to him again and say, Lord, I've got a few cuts and some pretty deep scars, but I'm still game. I'm still game to follow you. That's an important moment to be able to do that. Or say, Lord, I, I want to keep running. I don't want to ease off into a jog. I want to finish well. I want to keep running. Or Lord, I want to keep fighting. I want to keep fighting off the temptations, the this and the that. For some of us, maybe we need to say, I need to just, I want to get around the bread and the wine and get with a brother or sister and just pray and determine together. There's a brotherhood thing or a sisterhood thing. Come on, we're going we're gonna to keep following Jesus and keep each other in good shape. Maybe it's that. But I suggest that we use the songs in our time left and the bread and the wine to really do business with him. For some of you here, maybe you just know, I need to become a Christian. Well, become a Christian. Okay? Come to Christ. You know what it is for you. Maybe it is leaving this, leaving this particular people, leaving this particular relationship, this particular area where you, things you just love and have gripped your life. Okay, we'll leave them so you can get to Jesus. Okay? It's worth it. Whatever it is, it's worth it. Leave it, leave it, leave it. Some of you maybe got discord, you know, in relationships, strain it out. Why? For the sake primarily of Christ. He's worth it. He really is worth it. Huh. Let's pray. Lord, You are worth it. Please just say that. You are worthy. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. To receive honour and glory, wisdom and thanks, power and praise. Worthy are you. Worthy are you. For you shed your blood 
and you've purchased people from every tribe and tongue and nation, that we might become a kingdom of priests. And we say, Jesus, you are the lamb that was slain and you're the conquering lion. We honour you. We thank you for your death on that cross. We thank you so much for what you went through to win us. We thank you, Lord. And we, I want to say, I'm yours. I want to say, I'm yours, Lord. So, Lord, take our hearts and our, all that's going on in all of our lives, Lord, in the room this big, so much going on. We thank you. Your grace is more than sufficient. It's a light thing for you to meet with all of us and deal with all of us. It's a light thing. It's an easy thing, Lord. So we commit ourselves to you, omnipotent one. Make your presence known among us, I pray. Amen. Amen. Why don't we stand? And I want to say, we've probably got about 20 minutes or so. I want to just plead with you. Do business with God. All right? These rows are here to help us. Do not be constrained by them. Get to the people you need to get to to pray with. We should have some lanyards here. Those of you that are uh, on the pastoral team, if you want to come and grab one of these to pray with people. Listen, if you're here with friends and people you know and love, of course you can pray together. But if you're here and you don't know anyone that you would pray with, we give a few people that we've trained on a pastoral team to wear these just so you know we know them. We've given, given them some equipping. They're good people. We trust them. Okay, so if you don't know anyone here but you want someone to pray with you, there'll be people at the back that are wearing these. If you're on the team, you want to come and pray for people today, please find one. And um, they're down the front here and, and put one on. And uh, let's do the bread and the wine. Let's meet with God. God is here. Let's redeem the time. As the Bible says, the Spirit is happy to meet with us. Amen. Why don't we stand?